many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is. The return to glory. McDavid stops up. What a move. Shoots. Scores. Welcome to the Outsiders. It's Bryn Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee. Hang on a second. You know, we were coming off Halloween, so... <laughs> Don't you feel like you're at the Chicago Stadium? Hey, speaking of the Chicago Stadium, I don't know how relatable this is, but there's also another big event coming up this week. Jim Corneliuson singing the American Anthem in Chicago. He and Wayne Mesmer were great anthemists. And, of course, you had that pipe organ going at the old Chicago Stadium and now the United Center. And who is calling me right in the middle of a show? That is unacceptable. Is that a fine? Oh, should I be fined for that? It is a fine. Yeah, well, you didn't. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to, I don't know what's going on today. I just, you know, I know exactly what's going on today. Too many arrow bars. Did you get any kids at all? No, we uh, we uh, put out word that this year we would not be uh, handing out candy. Um, it was sort of uh, split in our neighborhood. We just thought, uh, nah, not worth it at this point. And we love Halloween. We're usually right in there. Yeah. Um, and since our son is. Uh, older than uh, what you'd want out trick-or-treating now he hands out the candy and enjoys it love the costumes love the fun but right now whether it's leaving a bowl of candy on your front steps or sliding it down the tubes just not the same those hey those people that did it great a lot of people in our neighborhood did we just uh, we just left the lights off and went and watched a scary movie. Well, it's funny. We left a big bowl out. It was a big, beautiful silver mixing bowl. Somebody took it. They took all the candy <laughs> and the mixing bowl. And, of course, my better half was uh, not very happy about the fact that her really no. good mixing bowl was gone. So we decided <laughs> to walk the neighborhood. And sure enough, we found the bowl. I've, they only wanted the candy, but they took the whole thing. And I said, I guarantee you we're going to find that within a two-block radius. And sure enough, we found it about a block and a half away. So now, instead so, of hearing about it every Christmas and Thanksgiving, which is where that, that bowl only came out to do mixing and stuff, I was afraid I was going to have to hear about that for the rest of my life. But luckily, we found it. <laughs> so anyway. Well, you know, ki- kids will be kids. And at least they didn't, you know, set a paper bag of uh yeah flaming dog dog shit on the neighbor's uh, front steps like kids used to do on my street you mean robin brownlee used to do on his street well and, and greg and uh and jody and uh wow. anyway never mind you're outing everybody <laughs> on that one anyway uh, happy halloween and for those uh, folks in the u.s i hope you get around and vote that's a very important thing as well Okay, this show is a, is a big one. We have our good friend, TSN, and author, Bob McKenzie, joining us today to talk about his volume two of his new book, which is coming out on November the 10th. It is called Everyday Hockey Heroes. It's a, it's a sequel. A subsequent book is what it is. Yes. And so we're looking very much forward to talking to Bob about his book and also his kind of retirement out at the uh, lake and how sure. that's yeah exactly uh he's still going to be appearing on tsn frequently but not as frequently so we'll talk we'll be talking with bob about that but one of the things we have to talk about right off the top is we lost a good friend of ours this past week joey moss and joey yeah. was the longtime locker room attendant with the edmonton oilers and i can tell you right now looking at the exposure that his passing received from not only 
the media in Edmonton, I was blown away by the reaction across the country and also stunned by the kind of reaction I was seeing off of ESPN, who also made a point of pointing Joey out to anybody who maybe was not familiar with uh, with what a fixture he was in that Edmonton Oiler locker room. Well, the, the thing for me, Bryn, and, and those of us who were lucky enough to spend some time around him because we were around the team uh, know this. Um, the thing about Joe Moss for me is that he was the epitome of a success story. Joey was the epitome of what's possible if you just take a chance and provide an opportunity. Um, as everybody knows, uh, Joe had Down syndrome, and even dealing with that and living that reality every day, he came into that locker room, uh, thanks to Wayne Gretzky, took on a, a job that later expanded to working with the uh, Edmonton football team and the CFL. And if you were around the team, you were around Joe. And he was that one constant in there. Players came and players went. Scouts came and went. Coaching staffs came and went. Uh, and Joe Moss was there uh, brewing the coffee, uh, vacuuming the dressing room, folding the towels. And he always had, as you've heard it a thousand times, he always had a, you look good for the people that uh, walked through that door. Which was and, a blatant lie, by the way, because you and I on some occasions oh. did not look good, but Joe tried to make us look good. Well, he was sneaky that way, you know. He would he would fib that way. And, of course, when it came to, 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 to the wrestling for the, for the belt in the room, uh, you know, he was a pretty good heel. Uh, he would do whatever it took to win. So there were so many me- uh, dimensions to Joe Moss, and everybody has their memories. But for me, the, the bottom line with Joe is what a beautiful uh, success story he was and how he showed what's possible. We know the influence he had through Winifred Stewart Association in Edmonton for people with Down syndrome. But through this whole week, and it was a tough emotional one for us because we knew him well, not as emotional as it would be for the people inside that locker room, but the exposure he received all across the country and also in the U.S., I think has done wonders for Joe's reach is going to still continue to expand even after he's passed away. And and I love that. I just think that, uh, like I said, the amount of exposure he got across the country for uh, people with Down syndrome I think is immense. And uh, he's going to be missed. Uh, you know, one of the things, too, I did six different interviews on uh, on that day. And it was a tough – I knew it was going to be tough. You got a hold of me in the afternoon, and I knew the following day was going to be brutal because we were going to have to be telling people funny stories. And there's a lot of them. But it just – I found that it was starting to grind me down emotionally. And uh, Corey Grimm, our good friend who – is now doing an evening show on TSN 1260 in Edmonton. They'd lined me up to come on at 8 o'clock. I had nothing left by 6. And I really didn't want to go on and and talk anymore. But once I got on the show with Corey, and we started laughing and remembering all the fun times we had with Joe, it didn't seem to be as tough as it was two hours earlier. But it it was just a very, very difficult day. But there's been times this past week where I'd be driving around and something would, something would make me think of Joe. And the 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 one that uh, the 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 one that that I I remembered the most from this past week was I was flipping around on the radio dial, and nobody does it better by Carly Simon, came on. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which Bond movie that was, but the one of the biggest Bond fans I ever knew was Joe Moss. He loved he loved all those Bond movies, and players would take him to see those movies all the time. Numerous times they would see the same movie, but I thought of Joey. And I get home, and about five or ten minutes later, Barry Stafford gives me a call. Out of the blue, just phoning to see how I'm doing. And I said, you're never going to believe yeah. this. I was thinking about Joe. And uh, 
he, I mean, we laugh because there's so many great stories about Joey, but he touched everybody in different ways. And for me, that's a big thing. And then sure enough, so the biggest Bond fan leaves us the middle of the week. And then I hear Sean Connery, probably the biggest of all the Bonds, also passes away on the weekend. It was just, like I said, tough emotional week, Robin. Yeah, well, Sean Connery was my favorite Bond as well. Of course, he was right in my wheelhouse, uh, given my age. And back then, when things like the Aston Martin with the machine guns and the uh, ejection what? seat and all that stuff, that was pretty that was pretty cool tech in the 60s. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love that character. I love that series. Lost a little bit of interest in it uh, once uh, Connery was not in that role. But back to Joey for a second, and you mentioned him. One of the many things I thought of, Bryn, uh, was the I, the relationships and and, and the love. Uh, it was that's what it was that Joe had with people like Barry Stafford, like Sparky Kolchiski, uh, like Kenny Lowe, uh, like Sliver Delory, uh, like Jeff Lang. Um, all those people, you'd see them talking and you'd hear it in their voices. There were so many special relationships there. And, and as we talked about, everybody's got, we could do, we could fill two hours on it. Um, I remember so many things, but they're more memories than special stories or surprisingly this or, yeah, there's funny stuff in there and there's stories that I haven't told and probably that I never will. Um, just remember the, the impact he had on people. And when there's so much pain and there's so much grief when something like this happens, I mean, uh, Joey was 57 and, and, uh, that was a good long run, uh, for somebody with down syndrome that doesn't ease the pain for the people who love him, obviously. Yeah. But I wonder now, uh, for Joey Bryn, and I'm sure you've got some ideas. What comes next? There's been lots of suggestions. How do you truly honor um, the life uh, that was Joey Moss, uh, his contribution to the local sports scene, and to the to our society as a whole? You know, what do you do? Um, is it a banner? Is it an empty seat? Is it a statue? Um, all of the above. Uh, what's your take on it? Well, you know what? I know Bob McKenzie is just kind of wanting to get jump in here on our meeting in a couple of seconds. So, you know what? Let's just hang on to that. Let's talk to Bob, okay. and then we're going to come back, and let's get into that a little bit. There's some other stuff to talk about as well. But I yeah. um, I have some thoughts on, on it, and I've been thinking a lot about it lately. But I just don't want to toss it away here when we got Bob waiting. So let's yeah. do this at the end. And, uh, and, it, and, it, and, you know, anybody who's tuning in can think a little bit about themselves and you're more than welcome to send us an email and we'll tell you all about that coming up in a little bit. The Outsiders is brought to you by the Macintosh Group at Remax River City. We'll tell you about all the great work they're doing when we come back. But up next, it's Bob McKenzie from TSN. If we can get him off the lounge chair, we'll get right to Bob. <laughs> The book is called Everyday Hockey Heroes, and author, I don't even, can I still call you a TSN kind of guy, the insider, or am I still allowed to do that, Bob McKenzie? You can call me anything you like, just as they say, don't call me late for dinner. Um, yeah, you know what, I'm, the insider thing, I mean, it's not really accurate, I'm kind of an outsider now, You're but like I, us. I'm still working, I'm still working, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, all things being equal, uh, fingers crossed. Um, I hope I'm coming to Edmonton on December 20th for the World Juniors. Um, assuming they get bubble going and uh, everything goes well with the IIHF and Hockey Canada, there's no issues between now and then, but that's the plan. And so I'm still working. I'm doing the World Juniors. I covered the draft. I'm doing draft rankings. So I got plenty enough 
TSN stuff to keep me busy. You can still call me a TSN guy. I just don't know that I'm technically an insider anymore. But yeah, you know what? Had the had the handle for so long. Sure, go ahead. Okay. But uh, still busy no. enough. Bob, I'm not buying this. Uh, like you just touched on it, I'm not buying the semi. What is semi retirement? You've had you you've been in the middle of the mix for a long, long time, and I know at some point you want to kick back and relax a little. But really, how much are you going to relax, or is, are you going to get pulled back in by this event, that project? Because you could be as busy as you want to be. Yeah, that's probably true, Robin, but I'll, I'll tell you what, um, I don't want to be too, too busy, and, th and that's why I, I made the point of, quote-unquote, semi-retirement, and you're right, what is semi-retirement? Here's what semi-retirement is for me, um, for starters. So, as Bryn will know, because he used to be the host of the morning show on the radio show in Edmonton, um, I do, my, my old life, was Montreal Radio Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning, Edmonton Radio Monday and Friday, <clears throat> excuse me, Winnipeg Radio Monday and Friday morning, um, Vancouver Radio Tuesday and Thursday, uh, TSN Radio Toronto Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, Sirius XM um, every Friday afternoon. Uh, TSN Radio Ottawa, every single Ottawa Senator pregame show for, <coughs> excuse me, um, for every preseason, regular season, and playoff game. That's when the Sens were still making the playoffs. So all that radio is gone. And that's, for starters, that's, that's a lot of free time back. And what it also allows you to do is, if there's a regular season hockey, if it, were, if it were normal times, not pandemic times, if there was a regular season hockey game on, on a Tuesday night, I wouldn't feel obliged to necessarily watch it. I didn't want to because I had to know what the hell was going on for my Montreal radio hit on Wednesday morning. Um, yeah. So, you know, even during the, the playoffs, and again, it was summer, so it was a little bit different. But I was semi-retired, so I watched some games here and there. But i got to be honest with you, I wasn't watching every game. And now the stuff that I do have to do, World Juniors, draft rankings, trade deadline day, free agent day, there's a start time and there's a finish time. And I know what those start times and finish times are. So to your point, Robin, I'm not getting sucked back into the vortex of every waking moment of the day or every night. I'm sitting there saying, well, i got to watch every game that's available to me. Otherwise, how am I going to talk about all these games on the radio in the morning? Yeah. So, so how tough was it during the bubble? Because I had the option of going out and mowing the lawn or sitting on the deck or watching a hockey game because hockey was going on in August. That was, that was tough for me. Was it tough for you? Uh, yes and no. Um, but, you know, I, just, I love hockey. Like, and, I, and I love the career that I've had because of hockey. And I'm blessed and really fortunate. Um, but I've always felt like, I feel like there's more to me than just what I did for a job and profession. And, and it is my passion and it always has been. Um, but I'll be honest with you, um, I miss junior hockey more than the NHL right now because my son's the general manager and head coach of the Kitchener Rangers in the OHL. And I get to be a passionate hockey fan of the Kitchener Rangers and my son, and they're not playing and there's no games and haven't, they haven't had any games since last March. Um, so I miss that more than I miss NHL regular season games. And, and because it was August and September, as I said, I watched some of the games that interested me if I was in the mood to be interested. And a lot of the other times, I was, I was doing other stuff. Bob, you mentioned the OHL, and before we get into the book and the bigger picture stuff, got to get your thoughts on this. Uh, the OHL and no hitting. Uh, in a year when everything's goofy, 
Um, is is this is this doable in a, in a year? The OHL is going to host the Memorial Cup, and is it doable? Can you play hockey at that level with no hitting? Well, here here's the thing, Robin. The, the whole controversy and the fact that this has become somewhat of a cause celeb for me is simply because Lisa McLeod, the, the Minister of Heritage, Culture, and, and Sport in Ontario on a couple of public occasions, very publicly, demonstrably, and assertively made that point. So that, that if there's going to be OHL hockey this year, there's not going to be any body contact. And, and so I was like, oh, that's ridiculous. And the reason I say that's ridiculous is not because I don't think we should do things safely. But... And I, and I, and, and when, when this, like on Friday, I think it was Friday, yeah, Friday, this past Friday, Lisa McLeod tweeted some stuff about it again. She'd done it yeah. a few weeks or a month ago, and I, and I ignored it at the time, and I thought to myself, that sounds ridiculous to me, because I'm not a doctor, I'm not a health expert, but someone's going to need to explain to me how quote-unquote, body checking is more dangerous to read the spread of COVID than the battle for a puck, which is, you know, just an essential quality of the game of hockey, even non-contact hockey. Close quarters, battling for a puck or in front of the net. If someone's going to need to explain to me why, quote-unquote, body checking is inherently more dangerous for the spread of COVID than these 18 skaters and one backup goalie sitting on the same bench, breathing the same air after they're snorting and spitting and doing everything that hockey players do when they come off the ice. Or they're not going to be wearing masks and they don't have, you know, full facial protection. So, you know, I never understood why, why this was the case. And I asked these questions of Lisa McLeod on Twitter on Friday night and she didn't answer them. Um, and so it became a, and I just didn't understand why in, 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 you know, the OHL is not playing if they play because everything's got a NIF attached to it these days. Mm-hmm. The OHL is not playing any games until February. Um, why are we getting into this huge viral debate about whether there's going to be body checking or not? Let's take a step back here, but it was because Lisa McLeod kept on putting it out there that this was going to be the case. And you got a lot of hockey people really enraged, and there was a lot of blowback. And on Saturday night, I believe, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, tweeted out, hey, we're working, we're engaged with the OHL on a safe return to play, and it's our desire that when they start to play, that there will be body checking. But as I said, everything's got to be done safely, and, and you know, and as I said, somebody's going to have to explain to me why body checking in the OHL would be more dangerous than what information did Lisa McLeod have that British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, um, Quebec, all the maritime provinces have that, 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 that they, they, they don't have because yeah. there's hockey being played at various levels with contact in all those places. You know, the BC Junior League is, is up and going and, and what have you. So anyways, it's um, I think it got more attention than it probably deserved because I don't ever think it was necessarily as cut and dried as Lisa McLeod was making it out to be. And the tweet from her boss, Doug Ford, on Saturday night would suggest that to be the case. Right. But stay tuned, I guess. Hey, how did you feel about the way the NHL handled the bubble? And the way things played out, because I, did we even have a positive? Did we have one positive no. test? I don't think we had a single one, did we? <clears throat> no positive test at all. Um, and uh, it was, I thought it was really, really, really well done. And I think the NHL, it takes a lot of heat for a lot of things over the years. Um, and rightfully so sometimes. I thought the NHL did a great job. I thought the NHL Players Association did a great job. I think the players did a great job, the coaches, the managers, all the personnel. Um, the, the people associated with the bubble in Edmonton, the people associated 
with the bubble in Toronto. And I mean, hey, it wasn't cheap. I, it was, I think I saw them, uh, the numbers they were throwing out, $90 million. Mm-hmm. It cost the league to put that on. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Um, and, um, but, it, you know, it was, it was good that they could do it safely. And um, it was, and I think it was important on a couple of levels. Business wise, they wanted to make sure that they didn't have to have huge refunds to all the television partners. So they satisfied that. Um, but I think, too, they just didn't want it to be an unfinished season with no Stanley Cup presented. And they didn't want COVID to, to beat the Stanley Cup. And so we were able to, to have a Stanley Cup final and, uh, and, and, and get to that logical conclusion. Bob, they did do a terrific job in Toronto and Edmonton, uh, especially from the health part, which is the most important. But let me ask you this. Uh, we're talking about late January, February to start a new season. We're hearing could be 48 games, could be 60 games. Can the NHL do this again in a bubble setup? Um, no, not a chance. That's what... No chance for a, a quote-unquote bubble. Um, obviously, there's, you know, and again, I, I'm not in the day-to-day grind like my buddy Dregs or Pierre Lebrun or any of the TSN Hockey Insiders, Frank Cervelli, Darren Dreger. But what my understanding of the situation is there are a lot of owners that don't want to play. If they can't have fans, they don't want to play. They're like looking at the economics of it and saying, this makes no sense. Like, we're going to yeah. pay our players. We're going to go to extraordinary lengths to put the games on, and there's no revenue coming in. We'd be better just to not play until such time that we can have fans. But I think Gary Bevin's looking at it and saying, easier said than done. You, you can't just put the shutters up for who knows how long and say we're out of business. That's, that's not a good business model. So I think the NHL is looking at their various options. And as long as the border restrictions are in place, we're going to have to have an all-Canadian division. Mm-hmm. Um, or that would certainly be the, the thing that would make the most sense. And you'd have to have the various divisions in the States. But even an all-Canadian division, there's other options there. You know, it, it could be that um, NHL players would be able to, <coughs> excuse me, Canadian-based NHL teams could fly to the U.S. to a hub, not a bubble, play a series of games, come home to their home community, quarantine for two weeks, and then go back and play some more. So there's lots of options that might or might not include a Canadian division. But the, the, the general principle of what I believe the NHL is looking at is, is – these various hubs, one for each division. And as I said, it would be similar in that there would be an NHL rink close to a hotel, and the better part of that hotel could be taken over by the NHL for all the seven or eight teams in the division to go and spend a a two- or a three-week period and play a bunch of games, regular season games, not locked down as much as you were in the bubble, um, but still, you know, going through some testing protocols and still engaging in the, the safest means possible outside of a lockdown bubble and play those games and then tell the teams to go back to their home bases and, and, and shut it down for a little bit or cycle, you know, half the teams in the division for a week or two and then cycle them home yeah, and then cycle the other half teams in for a week or two so that you're getting a consistent bunch of games being played so it, it can be done um but you know they're looking at all those permutations the, the players the, the pa and the nhl from what i understand one thing COVID has taken down is the hockey hall of fame induction ceremony coming up in a few weeks it won't be happening until next year that's the right call i gotta think yeah no doubt about that and, and plus i mean you know it's not just the induction ceremony, though. We just got word in this past week, and I'm on the, the I'm on the selection committee for the Hockey Hall of Fame. There's not going to be any elections for 2021. So what it basically means is that Kevin Lowe and Doug Wilson and everybody that got elected last June, um, and would normally 
be going into the hockey, being inducted in the next week or 10 days is usually when the, the uh, induction ceremony happens. That will be put off for a year to next November. And next June, we won't even go through the process of um, inducting any new members. So it's just a year off and allowing Kevin Lowe and Doug Wilson and all the other guys that have been inducted one of the list in front of me, and my memory's not sharp enough at age 64 to remember them all off the top of my head. <laughs> but um, they'll get their moment in the sun in a proper fashion as opposed to um, having to do something virtually, which wouldn't be the same for the friends and families. Bob, when you mentioned, when we talk about the Hall of Fame inductions and the other things associated with it, one thing that strikes me, I don't know if it's if it's, it's not as important as let's get rid of this COVID-19 and get past it all together. But one of the things for me is we, the league get, needs to get back on something resembling a normal timeline, training camp time, uh, the season starts, uh, you know, early October, you have your, you, you have your playoffs, your draft, your free agency, I don't know how they even do that if there is a season this year unless they keep it to a limited number of games. But how important is it to get it back into the more traditional timeline, do you think? Well, I think it's important, and I think everybody wants it. The league wants it. Players want it. Fans, media, everybody. We all are craving, not just in hockey, obviously, but in life. I think everybody's craving we want normalcy back. We just want to be able to do everything we used to do, in our routine, and our schedule, some reasonable facsimile of the way we used to do it. And, yeah. and, and eventually that should happen, but we don't know how long that's going to take. So to your point, Robin, you get, we don't start a season, an NHL season until late January, early February. What's it going to look like? What we know is that, you know, they probably got to have the Stanley Cup presented by the end of June, early July, if the Olympics are going on next summer, um, NBC's got the Olympics in July, assuming they're going on. And if NBC's doing the Olympics, they wouldn't be able to do a Stanley Cup final in the middle of July. So, you know, there's a little bit of a deadline there to try and get the season finished and the cup presented um, by late June, early July. <clears throat> How many regular season games? That means I don't know. Um, what that means for the draft, what that means for the expansion draft. Uh, Seattle coming in for supposed to do the expansion draft in the summer. So it's not going to return to normal quickly. Uh, and it may take a while for it to cycle back. For, for every every month and, and year that we go on here, pushing things to a later start date, it, you can't just revert to normal life, you know, that yeah. quickly, you got to slowly evolve back to, to normal life and the dates and what have you. So sooner the better, I guess, for everybody, but I don't know when that's going to be. Talking hockey with Bob McKenzie. Okay, so Borat had a movie come out, and he's now had a subsequent movie come out. Let's get to your book, Everyday Hockey Heroes. You've already written a first volume, and this is a subsequent volume. Tell everybody, about, and the book's coming out on the 10th of November, Tell everybody about this book, Bob, because uh, I, I love hearing other stories away from the game a little bit and how people still have a huge impact on on how we watch and how we uh, partake in, in hockey. Yeah, I've had my name on four books. The, the, the very first book that I wrote was Hockey Dad, True Confessions of a Crazy Question Mark, a <laughs> Hockey Parent. Yeah. Um, and and I, that was a real labor of love, and it was a really personal thing about raising two boys in the minor hockey system, the good, the bad, and quite frankly, the ugly at times. Um, and I was ugly at times on that front. But I, I, re I really enjoyed that. That was a book that I had in me and it needed to come out. So that I did that. The, the next book I did was Hockey Confidential, and that was probably seven years ago. It was a series of stories that I just found interesting. Um, and I probably had um, more financial motivation to do that book initially we needed a new kitchen at the cottage and i thought oh someone's offering me to do a book i guess i guess <laughs> and it was a lot of work and but i got the kitchen so so that was great but i'm i'm really proud of the stories in that book and 
everything from profiles on P.K. Subin's father, Carl, to, uh, to Gord Downey, to uh, the, the story of how hockey analytics really came to be. And Edmonton's got a big part um, in that. Um, Edmonton, believe it or not, much to the chagrin of some, would um, was almost a cradle of um, advanced hockey statistics for a lot of years. Um, and, uh, and as was Alberta. So um, but that, that's another story for another day. But anyways, um, it was about three years ago, Simon and Schuster Canada came to me, and they already had a book project underway, and they were calling it Everyday Hockey Heroes. Um, it was inspiring stories on and off the ice. And they'd already started the ball rolling, and they had some of the, the – First-person stories from people like Wayne Simmons in the National Hockey League, what it was like to grow up in Scarborough, Ontario, and, um, and, and as, a, as a family that didn't have a lot of money and, and had difficulty for him to be able to play at the highest level, to say nothing of, of the racial issues that he faced. Um, and they showed me a couple of these stories, and they said, we're, we're interested in having you partner up with this, and we'd like you to do some writing in the book. Um, and, and put your name on it. And um, my, our good friend Jim Lang, who used to work at Sportsnet and does a radio show in uh, in uh, just north of Toronto now, he he'd done a lot of the stories. There was an editor by the name of Sarah St. Pierre who who worked with with Jim and the subject matters, and they did a fantastic job of these first person stories. So they asked me if I wanted in, and I said, Yeah, I do. And the and the reason I like this concept of the book so much is because it was a book about some famous people, some not-so-famous people, who had inspiring stories on and off the ice. And it was a little bit of a book about what I, what I guess I would call the evolution of hockey culture. So hockey culture, um, oftentimes today is kind of a bad, it's a phrase that comes up with some negative connotations. And I understand why, um, because some aspects, people who protect some of the core, the, the core values of the hockey culture, they haven't gone about it the right way. They've done it in a, in a in, you know, to push other people away to say this is hockey and it's about this. And if you don't believe that, then, then you're out here. And so instead of it becoming an inclusive game, at times they tried to make it more exclusive. And, and I, with the, the first volume of Everyday Hockey Heroes, um, I thought there were some really great stories of people who broke down barriers and who, who made hockey culture more welcoming for everybody. Um, and so I had the opportunity to be involved and I, and I really enjoyed it. And for, it was in, in some ways a, a life-changing experience for me because I got to see some, you know, like a Karina pop band. People wouldn't know who that is, but a woman in Ottawa who just went to extraordinary measures to make sure that Syrian refugees who came to Ottawa had an opportunity because they didn't understand the game, they didn't under, they didn't have the money to play it, they didn't have the equipment to play it. She got all sorts of Syrian refugees outfitted and, and found people to offset the cost and got them involved in, in house league hockey in Ottawa. And I thought that's a, an amazing story of inclusivity and, and changing the hockey culture um, to, to be a really positive thing. And so we, we came back here two years later with Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2. And, um, and again, it, the introduction which I wrote is about hockey culture and, and how the hockey culture we all need to, in a year where we had the Don Cherry stuff, in a year where we had the, the Bill Peters stuff, in a year where obviously we've had Black Lives Matter, although with Black Lives Matter, um, George Floyd and, and, and what happened this summer, the book was already done at that point. But the point is that um, a lot of people, when you hear the word hockey culture, they're like, oh, burn it to the ground. There's so much wrong with hockey culture. And as I said, there are things wrong with hockey culture, but there's a lot of things right about hockey culture. And if we are going to change and make hockey culture evolve, then we need to, we need to celebrate the good parts of it call out the bad parts of it and and that's what this book does and and so there are stories in here 
and, and you know, there's a story from Joey Gale, who's a, a, a young Amer American man who was a closeted gay man who talks about how hard it was for him to love the game of hockey because there was so much homophobia um, in, in the game. And so he, he pulled away from the game. And when he came out and, and, and wasn't closeted anymore and, 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 and allowed people to see who he was, he went back to the game and he, he told the story of, of how when he went back to it, he was much more open about it. And his way of doing that was to come back and on his men's league team, use pride tape. And when somebody saw the pride tape, they said, hey, who's got the gay tape here? And he says, I do because I'm gay. And it was a fascinating story for me, um, for him to tell. And the, 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 the partner story of that is one that would involve guy you know, Billy Ramsey. You know, pride tape, that rainbow-colored tape that, that is a symbol of inclusivity for a lot of people in hockey. Bill Ranford was absolutely essential in, in pride tape becoming what it's become. And I never knew that. And so we've got a story from the founders of Pride Tape in, in the book telling their story and how much Andrew Ferentz and, and Billy Ranford helped them put Pride Tape on the map. So there's, there's stories like that and others. Um, and, and yet, you know, there's a lot of editing connections in this book now that I think about it. You know, there's a chapter on Andrew, Andrew Cogliano. Why is Andrew Cogliano in there? Because for me, he represents, as well as any individual, the core values of what we've always perceived to be the best of hockey culture. Respectful, dignified, dedication, commitment, sacrifice, staying through injury, um, you know, teamwork, dedication, uh, sense of community and family and, and all those things. And, you know, he was very upset about the way he lost his Iron Man streak, and understandably so, because he mm -hmm. lost it on a suspension, not being injured or ill. Yeah. But it, you know, we we got to we got to celebrate a guy like Andrew Cogliano, who just is, is the consummate professional hockey player, and everything he accomplished, even though his Ironman streak isn't going to be the the record that he that he hoped it, it would be. So there's there's core values, old fashioned hockey stories there in the book. But as I said, there's stuff on Joey Gale and and Jessica Platt, a transgender uh, athlete. Um, who went to hell and back in her mind because she was born a certain way and she couldn't live with that and she had to have it changed and she did and and now she's telling her story and it's one of the most enlightening for a, for a, a straight older white man not knowing a lot about transgender process to read Jessica Black's story in Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2 was both so enlightening and so inspiring and so courageous. So anyways, lots of stories like that in the book, and I'm really excited about it. You know, the thing is, Bob, um, I love the concept of these books. I know in the one a couple of years ago, uh, Harner Ryan Singh was, was in there. Yes. Uh, he was on with Bryn and I last week. Uh, of course, he's written a book. I remember talking to Harner Ryan about uh, I covered the Kamloops Blazers uh, when Hitch was coaching there, when Robin Bawa was yes. playing with the Blazers. And I'm thinking back, holy cow, I'm old balls now. And that was a long time ago. But the stuff he had to put up with, and we're still talking about it today. Now, we may not be there yet, but if there's books like this, discussions like this about why don't we, and this isn't just a game for white guys from Saskatoon or somewhere in Northern Ontario. It's a game for everybody. Um, that's better for, for hockey and everybody in the long run, isn't it, than trying to make it some sort of elite, you can't play game. Absolutely. hundred percent. You're right. And we're not where we need to be, but you know, slowly but surely. I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. And I know there are some old time hockey people who hear that and they don't like it. And there, there are, I mean, listen, I know within the quote unquote hockey culture, there are going to be people who say, what you, wait a second, you got a story on a gay guy and a transgender woman and, 
you know, and, and, and go up and down and pride tape and and what have you. And, and not all the stories are 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 exactly like that. But you know what? Those stories need to be told and they need to be heard. And 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 I see the theme over and over again of of, of people who love the game of hockey. Which that that should unite us all, but it obviously doesn't. But if you're a hockey fan and you really truly love the game of hockey, and you read a story of somebody who loves the game of hockey, but they're driven away from the game of hockey because the culture in the game of hockey doesn't make them feel welcome because there's homophobic slurs or there's racial slurs or they're discriminated against or they're made to feel uncomfortable in their own skin. Like, I don't know. You, like, we, there just needs to be a lot more kindness in the world. And, it, you know, we, we can start with our own little corner of it in, in hockey. And, and so to your point about Robin Bawa and everything that he went through um, in the Western Hockey League, um, you know, I first off, I should point out that my buddy Jim Lang did way more work on this book than I did. I wrote the introduction, and I wrote one full chapter. Um, the first chapter of the book, which I'll talk about in a second, because it relates to what you talked about with Robin Bawa and where we, where we were and where we are and how far we've come, but how much further we still have to go. Um, but Jim did most of the work along with Sarah St. Pierre. And, and there's so many great stories, first person stories that highlight all different aspects. I mean, we've got Jack Jabonski, who, who Minnesota high school player who was paralyzed in a hockey game and is one of the, the, the bravest, most thoughtful um, kids that I've ever had the, the pleasure to get to know through hockey. And um, he tells his story. Um, and, and so there's lots of great stories in there. But um, I was thinking about what, what am I going to write about? You know, in, in the last book, we talked about Wayne Simmons. He's from Scarborough, Ontario. I'm from Scarborough, Ontario originally. I grew up in Scarborough at a different time than Wayne Simmons. Scarborough right now is arguably one of the most racially diverse communities in all of Canada. When I grew up there in the 1960s, it certainly wasn't. So I started thinking back to when I played hockey in Scarborough and minor hockey in Scarborough. And, and it's funny because Scarborough, as I said, racially diverse. One of the things it's known for now is putting more players, in the, more black players in the National Hockey League than any other single community that I can count. The Stewart brothers, Wayne Simmons, Joel Ward, um, Mike Marzen. Uh, the list goes on and on. Akil Thomas who scored the game-winning goal for Canada yeah. at the World Juniors last year, Eastern Scarborough. Anyway, um, I was thinking about what I wanted to write, and I started thinking about where I lived and where I grew up and how cool it was that this place that I grew up that was very quite white in the 60s when I was a young boy um, had put all these black players and people of color in the National Hockey League. So I started thinking about my own minor hockey career, and I thought, hmm, did I play against many black kids? And I thought, yeah, some, not many. Um, I, I can remember having, over the course of my entire minor hockey career, from the time I was five, six years old and 16 or 17, I think I had two black teammates that entire time. But there were two players that jumped out at me. I, I was born in 56. Um, so in the 60s, when I was playing minor hockey, there were, there were two players in my age group that were black. So they stood out for obvious reasons. But they also stood out because for a couple more reasons. One because they were very good players. I wasn't. I wasn't very good at all. They were really good. And two, um, one of them was very tall, like really tall. Like in, in, in Pee Wee, he would have been like six foot two. Wow. And, but really rail thin and skinny as hell. Um, and the other guy was shorter, but he was so powerful and dynamic. And the other reason I remember them is because they, were, they had unique names. Terry Mercury was the tall, skinny guy, and Lindbergh Gonzalez was the, the shorter, more powerful, dynamic guy. And those are not names that you forget. And, and because they were good players and because they were black and stood out for those reasons, I remember quite well playing against these players. So I started thinking, I wonder what they're doing now. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool, interesting, enlightening, I would assume, if I could track these guys down and talk to them 
about because we, we we went to you know we competed against the same players we went to a lot of the same schools that we, we just knew a lot of the shared experience of growing up in Scarborough which was like a small town at the time and it's a big part of Toronto now but um I thought wouldn't it be cool to try and track these guys down and talk and that's what I did and I got hold of Terry and Terry's actually easy to find because he works for Sirius XM. He's a, he's a sports broadcaster on a lot of their channels, does sports updates and what have you. And uh, Lindbergh was uh, not too difficult to track down because I know I, I had recollected that as an adult, he'd done a lot of high-level officiating in the greater Toronto Hockey League. And so I was able to sit down with both of these guys, and we talked about their experiences versus my experience of growing up quite white in Scarborough versus theirs. And it was, it was fascinating and provocative and I learned a lot. And, and for obvious reasons, they had difficult, much, many more difficulties than I did. And so, you know, that's coming to terms with what we call white privilege. And the, the funny thing is some people get their backup. Some white people get their backup to say white privilege. And, and that, because as a kid growing up, my, you know, Scarborough's a blue-collar town, and my mom was in a wheelchair and had rheumatoid arthritis, and was, you know, my dad had two jobs, and he worked 12, 14. I never saw my dad Monday to Friday because he was working all the time. I never thought of myself as privileged, but that's not what white privilege is. White privilege is simply, I'm involved in hockey, I'm white, and I didn't face any roadblocks to playing hockey or being around hockey in my career or as a kid because I had the privilege of being white in a white sport in a mostly white community in a mostly white country at the time. And so what you realize is that for Terry Mercury and for Lindbergh and Zalvis, they didn't have it so easy. So they didn't have my privilege of being white. And, and so that's what my full chapter in the book is mostly about. And for me, it was a really, uh, a really good experience to talk to them. The book is Everyday Hockey Heroes. It is a sequel. And Bob McKenzie, uh, I got to ask you here, you got a long way to catch up to Stan Fischler, who's written a lot of hockey books too. <laughs> In fact, I was just looking at my bookshelf back here. I got a million Stan books. I've got a few of yours. It's, it's all great stuff. And uh, thanks for sharing your stories on that. Before we let you go though, one other guy that we are missing here in Edmonton, having uh, having Joey Moss pass away last week. I, I know that you weren't here in Edmonton on a regular basis, but we've been blown away by the reaction that Joe received, not just in Edmonton, but all across Canada, and seeing more and more ESPN stuff pop up. And I think Joe's impact is actually going to be even greater now that he's passed away because there's been this outpouring of love. It's been amazing. It is. And, 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 you know, Joey Mock is a quintessential everyday hockey hero whose, in, whose story is so inspiring. And, and, and credit to the Oilers and to Wayne and to everybody that was involved in bringing Joey into the fold. And then after that, Joey's magnetic personality just took over from there. And you couldn't, couldn't help but be won over by him. And, and, and so, again, that's, that goes to the thing of inclusivity and being kind. And, you know, there was a point in time in our history and our culture, and it probably still exists in some places and sometimes, and it's unfortunate that it does. If somebody looks or sounds different, and Joey looked and sounded different, that people would shun them or try to push them away or say, no, you, you can't be part of this. And when, in fact, it should just be the exact opposite. And the fact that Joey was able to rise above that and to, to champion his own cause as well as that of others. Um, it became a, a living, breathing example of what it is for people to be kind and inclusive and to, to not just pay lip service to this, you know, slogan that the NHL's had for years of hockey is for everyone. Hockey is for everyone. It's not always treated that way, but we got to get it to the point where it is. And so, People like Joey Moss and people that are featured in this book and and others um, like yourselves for having me on and, and even talking about it. That, that's 
all part of the process of of making hockey culture better. Hey, before we let you go, uh, is the boat in? Did you get the boat in? Oh yeah, the boat the, the boat was in uh, week after Thanksgiving, I think. So uh, yeah, it's starting to get it's a little chilly here, but the lake's not frozen yet, though. We, we can wait for a while for that. Hey, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. It's uh, great to see you. It's great to hear you, and it's great to read the book. And uh, thanks for your time today. And hopefully, we you know, hopefully we'll see you out here at Christmas time for the World Juniors. That'll be a blast. Yes, well, you're not physically see me. Well, you see me on TV, hopefully. And if you can peer through the window of one of the hotels, that's great. <laughs> but uh, I'll be locked down in the bubble and uh, doing this thing safely. But uh, first off, I, I want to thank you, Bryn, and you, Robin, for, for having me on today. It's great to catch up with both of you guys. Um, Robin and I used to run into each other on the beat years ago when we were both chasing things around, and Bryn, it was my great honor and pleasure to do the morning show with you in uh, in Edmonton, and uh, it's great to uh, catch up and see and, and hear you guys as well. And yeah, I'm looking forward so much to go to uh, to Edmonton, and uh, it would be so great if we can uh, if we can get this World Junior off the ground like it's planned. And because as near as we can tell, it doesn't. There's not going to be any NHL hockey at Christmas or New Year's. Um, and everybody loves the World Juniors because it's such great hockey. Um, but to have it at a time when there's nothing else hockey-wise on television, I think would be uh, a tremendous thing for uh, for everybody. So looking forward to it, and I uh, can't wait to get to Edmonton. We'll get you back on here again. We'll pull you off the frozen lake where you're doing a little fish. Do you ice fish, by the way? No. Okay. You just soft. I'm a soft Southern Ontario guy. I, Perfect. You guys know that. Bailey's and coffee in front of the fireplace at the lake is what that is. Uh, Bob, thanks I'm for your not, time. I'm not at all hearty like Ryan Rashad. <laughs> thanks for your time today. It's been great. Awesome, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. This is The Outsiders with Bryn Griffiths along with Robin Brownlee. And, of course, we're brought to you by our friends at the Macintosh Group. And you know what? 2020 has been an interesting year for so many of us. I don't think there's any denying that. But for everybody at the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City, it has been very interesting as well. And it's brought some new challenges when it comes to selling homes in the Edmonton area. The Macintosh Group at REMAX River City well, I don't think there's any doubt about it. They rose to that challenge, and they're finishing a year that has been tough on a lot of people. They've done a really successful job of it themselves, that success in helping buyers find their next home and also helping sellers get some sold signs up in front of their old homes is why Brent, who's been a good friend of mine for a long time, is now looking for some new team members. So if you know a real estate professional in the Metro Edmonton area with at least two years of experience who has to be caring, charismatic is a huge thing for everybody over there. They've got a great team atmosphere. Also, that person has to be driven and has to be hardworking. If you know somebody like that, Brent would love to talk to them and add another dynamic agent to his team. And all you have to do is reach out to them at the Macintosh Group. The phone number is real simple. It's 780 780- Four six four zero zero seven five, or you can check them out online at MacintoshGroup.ca. They're looking for sellers, buyers, and now they're looking for a new agent. And we got to thank everybody once again for their big support of the Outsiders and our podcast because uh, we have a lot of fun here. They have a lot of fun at the Macintosh Group, but the biggest thing is we all get our jobs done, and that's exactly what. The goal is. So once again, if you want to get a hold of Brent, just give him a shout. 780-464-0075. That is the Macintosh Group at REMAX River City. Great to chat with Bob McKenzie. Haven't talked to Bob in, I don't know, a couple of years, but the book is an interesting read. If you get a chance, once again, it is going to hit the bookshelves. 
both digitally and in actual book form coming up on the 10th of November. Simon and Schuster. I loved watching those guys after hockey games. Wait, wait a second. That's Wayne and Schuster. I'm thinking of Simon and Schuster. Yeah. 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 Right. Anyway. Uh, Hey, listen, before we go, we let's talk about the Joey Moss thing that we talked about right off the top as to what would be a wonderful lasting legacy. Do you have your thoughts? Do you want me to go first? Uh, no, I can, I can go, Brennan. I think I touched on it earlier. Um, I am all for what anybody out there wants to do. And I know that sounds wishy-washy, but I don't think there's necessarily a bad way um, to, to honor uh, the life of, of Joey Moss. Um, I like the idea, you know what? I like the idea of a Joey Moss statue because I would love to see it right beside the Wayne Gretzky statue. The, the tie there is obvious and eternal. Um, the empty seat thing, I don't know about the banner thing so much. I'm not against it. Like I say, I, I'm not going to come out against anything that honors Joey. But the one thing I think, and I don't know, it's not something physical you can put your hands on, that you can stand beside, that you can take a picture of. I would like to see... Uh, Everybody, be it a sports team, uh, be it uh, regular business out there, these are new times, Bryn. We're supposed to be more enlightened. And I think the best way to honor Joey Moss is a living legacy. And that legacy is for us to be more inclusive in hiring, in educating, uh, in all of our you being human on this earth activities that involve uh, people with learning disabilities, uh, people of color. Um, we've got to get there. Joe Moss and the Edmonton Oilers showed us what's possible if you just give it a try. And that's what I would like to see everybody do moving forward that would be a real honor to the legacy of Joey Moss. I completely agree with you. I, I, I'm not going to be against anything, but there's a couple of things that, that I would love. I would love the statue somewhere in the square or, uh, or the ice district. I don't want to have it right by Wayne. I think Wayne deserves that spot on his own. The other okay. side of the building where people get off the LRT train would be a nice location. But I'm definitely in favor of renaming the community arena the Joey Moss Community Arena. Yep. That one for me is a, is a no-brainer. The banner thing, I'm not a huge advocate of hanging too many banners anyway. But, you yeah. know, if we've, we've got these Oiler banners up there now, all Hockey Hall of Famers. Joey certainly has left a Hockey Hall of Fame legacy. You know, Garth Brooks has got a banner up there as well. So I'm not against the banner. I'm not against any of this stuff, but the two things that I really like to see, you know, they knocked the one casino down and there's a, there's going to be a big park there by the sounds of it. Right now it's just a big parking lot because that's the Edmonton way. But if they turn yeah. it into a park, I would have no problem having it at the Joey Moss Park. But, uh, but I really would like to see a statue, maybe of him singing the anthem. I don't know. Whatever people are going to remember. I don't want an empty seat. I think that that's a sad thing for me. Uh, I I just I, I think there's positive ways of doing it. They're going to do it right. Uh, I heard Kevin Lowe last week uh, talking about, you know, we don't want to rush to a decision here. We want to make the right decision. But to me, there's a couple. Yeah. One is a, is to rename the arena. And the other one is I want a statue. And I wanted a standalone statue of Joey somewhere. I don't want him near Bob and Doug McKenzie down the one end, and I don't want it right by Wayne Gretzky. If if it's down by the LRT station where people come into the arena the other way, I I think that's great. And if it's right down by the skating rink in, in the ice district, I'd be fine with that. But, hey, keep thinking about it. The other thing we want people to do is why don't you contribute? You could email us at mightymouth@shaw.ca. That's my email address. I'll get back to you really quick. So, once again, that's mightymouth.com at shaw.ca and you can also do what bob mckenzie's just done and he's now following us on twitter 
And uh, the Twitter handle is real simple for this show. It is at Outsiders, all in caps. That's at Outsiders 2020. Also, make sure you tell your friends and subscribe to the RSS feed on whatever favorite ear candy site you're picking this up on, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts, all of those. And uh, it's the retweets which really push our message further. And uh, we do really greatly appreciate your support for what we're doing here. And also, if you're interested in jumping on board as Brent McIntosh and his fine folks have done, if you want to jump on board and help us out a little bit, maybe with a little uh, potential advertising, we would love to hear from you. Once again, just email me at mightymouth@shaw.ca. Wow. Hey, the ski season's about to get going. Coming up on the next show, we go into the Masters week. Big golf week. The Masters. Going to be really a different experience. But guess who? We, you know who we got coming up next on the next one. What what month is it again that the Masters is being played? That's for me. That's always been the start of the official start of spring. Now it's going to be something else. Cam Cole, by the way. Cam, Cam Cole. Cole. Oh yeah, Cam Cole. Great, great sports writer in this country. Has attended many Masters. Even golfed at Augusta National, if I'm not mistaken. We'll chat with Cam. Looking forward to that. And I'm going to see if I can track down Brian Rode, our good friend at Marmot Basin. If you are ever in Alberta and you want to ski at a really great resort, Marmot Basin up in Jasper is a place that you should mm-hmm. consider. So, like I said, big show coming up. Robin, thanks for your time today. No worries, pal. Yeah, that was fun. We'll talk to you next week. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you will. was recorded earlier because we were ashamed to do it now.